40, and we continue to look at uh, what are commonly called the patriarchs, this uh, story of God's grace in living color uh, that gives us the last 40 chapters, 40-some chapters of Genesis. And we continue today in Joseph's, uh, the true account of Joseph's life. And I have good news for you. You will not feel uncomfortable or squeamish today as we move through Joseph's story and his life things get better and it is wonderful to end on a positive note when really so much of Genesis that which Rob prayed for that which we have studied has given to us uh, the, the the despairing and the disappointing aspects of our humanity and what we are seeing as we move through this book is that that God is is highlighting our need for redemption, and he's also pointing out his capabilities to redeem people. And it is a wonderful combination to see the reality of our existence, but to also see the hope of God's future and the ideal. As we begin this morning, I want to ask you this. What do heaven, earth, and the heart, the human heart, all have in common? Probably not three things that you would automatically put together. Heaven, earth, and the human heart. God can move in all of them. God does move in some of them. God can move in all of them. And what we're going to see this morning as we look at this part of the story of Joseph is God moving heaven, earth, and human hearts to both rescue and to reconcile. God is going to move heaven and earth and human hearts to rescue and to reconcile. We're going to find him doing things that are, that, that are huge, and we're going to find him doing things that are subtle. We're going to find him doing things that are explicitly stated, and we're going to find him doing things that are implicitly um, barely noticeable, but entirely recognizable. We are going to leave on a cliffhanger. Now, some of you know the end of the story. So it's hard to give you a cliffhanger for a movie you've already seen. Uh, But we'll look at the first part this Sunday. Rob will continue it with the second part next Sunday. And we will see how God made a promise in Genesis 3. God made a promise in Genesis 12, 15, 17. He reiterated it. And he is moving heaven and earth and even human hearts to make that promise come true. We'll begin by noticing how God moves heaven and earth in chapters 40 and 41. God's moving heaven and earth in chapters 40 and 41. I want to summarize the, the account from chapter 40. Many of you know it. We'll just review it very quickly. Last week we found Joseph in prison, unjustly, unfairly accused of a moral indiscretion that was also a capital crime. He finds himself in prison. Let's just read a couple verses in 39, starting in verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who was in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. We noted last week that that the Lord was with Joseph, and it's mentioned numerous times. The Lord is with Joseph, and and the only explanation we have for that is God's grace. 
Uh, God gives to Joseph dreams when he's 17 years old, approximately. Uh, Joseph is not um, shown to us as someone who is either deserving or undeserving of, the, of those dreams and of the future they foretold. Uh, it is not as if anywhere in the book of Genesis we, we find people earning God's favor. We find people getting God's favor and either acting uh, obediently in response to that or acting in disobedience. And the good news is, as we noted in Genesis 39 in particular, is that Joseph acts in obedience to God's grace extended to him. And in the best of circumstances, in Potiphar's house, though a slave, in the worst of circumstances, in prison, the Lord is with him. And what will happen next? Chapter 40 tells us the account of how Joseph is in prison with a couple of other royal officials straight from Pharaoh's court. Uh, A butler, or a cupbearer, and a baker. Both of them have upset Pharaoh. Both of them on the very same night have had dreams. And Joseph notices that uh, one morning their, uh, their, their faces are despondent and sorrowful and troubled and perplexed. And so he asks them, why? And they both say, we had dreams. Uh, we start not with the baker, but we start with the butler or the cupbearer of the king. And he tells Joseph his dream, that he had a dream and essentially... Uh, he had uh, uh, the, the vines growing around him, and uh, uh, ravens came uh, plucking from the vines, and he wanted to know what's going on with this vine dream. And Joseph says, very importantly, in verse 8 of chapter 40, uh, they said to him, we've had dreams, there's no one to interpret. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to the Lord, please tell them to me. Do not interpretations belong to the Lord. Joseph tells him that in three days, Pharaoh is going to restore him to his position as butler or cupbearer to to the king. And because the butler gets a good interpretation, the baker kind of has some courage, and he tells Joseph his dream. His dream is that he is going to... Uh, his dream is that three ravens came and they were plucking bread from the basket on top of his head, hoping for a good interpretation. He pauses, waits for Joseph to reply, and Joseph says, you in three days are going to be executed because of Pharaoh's displeasure. Two dreams, two very different outcomes, and in three days, exactly what Joseph said would happen did happen. Because interpretations of dreams belong to God. And the Lord was with Joseph. And so uh, the butler is restored to his place. Having previously promised Joseph that he would remember him at Joseph's urgent request. The butler, according to Murphy's law and in God's providence, summarily forgets Joseph. And Joseph for two whole years is in the prison, waiting, wondering, no way of communicating. He, he can't even text the butler and say, hey, hey, it's Joseph, remember me? You said you're going to talk to Pharaoh. No way of communicating. And we move to chapter 41. Pharaoh now has a dream. Basically, chapter 40 is setting us up that God gives interpretation of dreams to Joseph. And here's where the quote-unquote real dream and the real 
uh, interpretation are coming into play. Chapter 41, we find that Pharaoh dreams as well. Pharaoh has a dream. According to verse 10, none of his uh, court magicians, none of his um, uh, 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 interpreters, none of those who are typically involved in making known to him the dreams can, can tell him what's going on. These are not uh, illusionists, these magicians that we're told about in verse 8. These wise men are not um, someone who writes your horoscope in the newspaper. These are men who actually uh, have some sort of contact with the other side in a cultish sort of means. And they do have the limited ability to actually... Uh, foretell the future, but it says in verse 8, there was none who could interpret Pharaoh's dream. And then the cupbearer remembers, I know someone who can interpret your dream. Two years ago, I was back in prison and I had a dream and, and this, this, this prisoner, this Hebrew, interpreted my dream and exactly the way he said it was going to happen is what happened. And so I want to pick up the story in verse 14 and let um, Moses, the original author, and the Holy Spirit tell us this story with limited comment. As we read this, what we want to see is that God is going to move heaven and earth. You and I hear about Egypt, and we're not incredibly impressed. It's a dusty old kingdom. But Egypt is the United States of America of its day. It is the superpower. It is the dominant culture on the earth. It is the place that nations come to. And so what we're reading here is God moving geopolitical forces to accomplish His will. God's going to uh, enact His own divine climate change because He is taking history somewhere. So let's start reading in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that you can hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile, Seven seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and ugly, uh, thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning, or they were still as lean and uh, unattractive as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears of corn, uh, verse 23, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears of corn, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Just want to pause for a moment and say that 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 
the Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's house. The Lord was with Joseph in prison. Two years after he gives the interpretation, Joseph is still giving God the credit he is due. We don't know all of Joseph's thoughts while he's in prison. Psalm 105 gives us a little bit of divine commentary on the fact that Joseph is is there imprisoned, even though he has this position. He's described as in fetters. He is in a pit. In the New Testament, Stephen tells the story of the Old Testament and, and puts Joseph in this place of confinement. And yet Joseph's thoughts about God, his dedication to God, do not seemingly waver over the long term. And when he comes to Pharaoh, he says, God is the one who's going to tell you what is about to be. Verse 26, we continue. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after him are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. God is going to move heaven. There will come seven years of good plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land. Take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are, occur, that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Or as other translations say, in whom is the Spirit of the gods? <clears throat> Pharaoh, being a polytheist, would not have necessarily assumed one deity. But he did assume there was something very special in particular about Joseph. Then Pharaoh said in verse 39 to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring, his signature, as it were, from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot, And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name uh, Zaphonath Paniah. 
And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 13 years after he was first cast into the pit by his brothers, sold to the Gileadites, and brought down to Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, he The earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, prince of On, bore uh, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God continues to show up throughout this tale of Joseph, not simply in the big geopolitical aspects, but certainly within the life of Joseph. He is promoted. Yet he does not forget God. He is promoted. He has children. We, we notice that the names of his children are Hebrew. They're not Egyptian. And this is not simply that Joseph has uh, clung to his patriotism. No, he has clung to his faith in God. And the names he has chosen obviously are meaningful to him and most relevant to his circumstances. We continue reading verse 53 through the end of the chapter. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, and there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph what he says to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all what we would describe as the known world. God moves heaven and earth, and he's doing so to rescue Starving bodies. God moves heaven and earth. What we're reading here is an account in real time and real space. We are not living then. We're looking back at this and we are here this morning wanting to know what God has done in the past and trying to get some sense of what God is doing in our present The future, though cloudy and dim, most certainly has certainty to it. But what about right now? We're trying to figure out for our lives what's going on this month and in the coming months. What are we supposed to make of this week? What we can take away, I believe, from this story of God moving heaven and earth to accomplish His purposes is that 
God is most certainly in control of everything that we see, don't see. Things we think we control and things we have no control over, geopolitically, climate-wise, environmentally, politically, etc. I don't know what your Thanksgiving was like. Ironically, there wasn't a whole lot of political talk at our Thanksgiving, but maybe yours was different. Maybe you were dreading it. Maybe you avoided it. Maybe, maybe you wanted to engage in it. We are in December of 2019, and November of 2020 will be here before we know it. And some of us are worried that the wrong American government is going to mess up the church. I'm jumping from Genesis to now. We're worried that the wrong American government is going to mess up the church. I find it ironic as we read through our New Testament that the group that damages the church most in the New Testament are not the people outside of the church, but the people inside of the church. How did the Pharisees harm the church in the book of Acts? They didn't. Actually, what they did was they made the gospel spread to places where Jesus had told the Christians to go anyways. How did Rome harm the church during the emperor's persecutions? They didn't. The famous saying was famous because it was true. The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And what more could we say about kings and princes and sultans and dictators and tribal rulers the famous, the infamous, and the unknown persecutors. The winds of persecution have actually fanned the flame of gospel wildfire. Sometimes prosperity was an accelerant in places like England and the United States and in Europe in, in Reformation times, but more often than not, it was the winds of persecution that fanned the flame. So we need not be scared, my friends, of the United States government or of what any government can do to the church. Yes, I will vote for religious freedom and candidates who support it. encourage you to do the same. I'll post on Facebook about freedom of God-given conscience. But the fact of the matter is that since God can grow His church in the greenhouse of the Roman Empire... I will not be afraid of whatever climate God puts the American church in. Because in Joseph's day, God moved heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes. In the book of Acts, God moved heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes. And God has not changed in the intervening centuries. Perhaps that is why Martin Luther wrote these words, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I'm not heartless to my own kindred, my own family, my wife, my own children. Yes, I am concerned. But I also remember where I got my wife and my children. My children in particular have been lent to me. They are the inheritance, God says in the Psalms, which means that they were God's before they were mine. And He will care for them more deeply and more carefully than I could ever 
imagine. So since God moves heaven and earth to put Joseph in charge of disaster relief, I will trust him to take care of whatever geopolitical choice he makes through our votes in November of 2020. A second application I see from this passage. There are big geopolitical things and then God always is working within the individual. How did Joseph get here? How did Joseph get here? We obviously see it's clear. It wasn't through his scheming. It wasn't through his, his um, uh, intrigue in the court. It was not through any of his uh, machinations. It was not through uh, uh, well-paid consultants who worked on talking points. It's obvious that God put him there. And we would say, yeah, that's Joseph. I'm not Joseph. I'm not in prison. I'm not up for... Uh, any government position, whatever the case may be. But we do, in our own lives, have places where we ascend or descend. We do have places in our lives where we would desire prominence. And As we look at Joseph's story, I'm reminded of verses from Psalm 75 that remind us of where our promotions come from. Psalm 75, I say to the boastful, God does, do not boast. To the wicked, do not lift up your horn, do not lift up your horn on high. A horn being a, an ancient symbol of power, we would say a crown. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment putting down one and lifting up another. How did you get that promotion in your job? Why did you not get that promotion at your job? It is the God who moves heaven and earth and hearts who gave you that promotion or has decided not at this time. Why are you a class officer, students? Why are you not a class officer? How did you get that leadership position in your society or fraternity or sorority? When will you be a decider, a decision maker in your volunteer organization when God, who lifts up one and puts down another, decides? Why are others advancing when you don't feel like you are? Or why are you advancing at a rate that seems so quick compared to others? You see, God moves heaven, earth, and hearts because He has a plan. It's hard when you don't get what you think is coming to you. It is easier. I didn't say easy. It is easier when you remember who has all of these advancements lined up in perfect order. Chapters 40 and 41 show us God moving heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes. And we move to chapter 40, chapters 42 and 43, where God will move hearts. I must say there is something surprising to me this morning in our service as we look at this second point. God moves hearts because 
Uh, Rob and I did not exchange notes. But Rob prayed this morning about fractured relationships. He, he prayed specifically and used those words, fractured relationships. And I think the slide is coming up that God moves hearts to reconcile fractured relationships. I'm just going to guess that the Holy Spirit moved in his mind to prepare his prayer as he moved in my mind to prepare this sermon. That there are fractured relationships that we need to ponder this morning. And what happens in Genesis 42 and 43 is a wonderful story of how God, over the process of time, moves hearts to reconcile fractured relationships. It's a story. It's not a template. It's not a recipe. It's not a formula. The way Joseph goes about it is probably different from the way that we might go about it. Yet, as we move through, we will see God moving. We will see a necessary ingredient brought right to the very surface. And this morning, we'll simply see the process. And next week, we'll see the conclusion. Verses 1 through 4 tell us that Jacob and his family in the land of Canaan are affected by the famine as well, and they need to go get grain, and they've heard there is some in Egypt, and so they go. Verse 5 says, Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him, with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph, excuse me, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. His beard has been shaven. He is, uh, by this point in time, 20 years older. Verse 9 says, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. What the brothers have to say here is, at least at that point in time, true. They are honest men. They are not spies, but they have not always been honest men. Right? They sent Joseph's coat of many colors dipped in goat's blood to dad and asked the innocuous question, do you recognize this? Their honesty or lack thereof will be tested in the coming chapters. Verse 12, he said, to them, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. 
Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you were spies, and he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine for your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them and said, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes, Simeon being the second born, Reuben the firstborn, Reuben having now uh, uh, actually uncovered for Joseph what Joseph did not know before, that Reuben was actually trying to rescue him. So Joseph takes Simeon, the secondborn, holds him accountable for what the brothers did, bound him before their eyes, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. They turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. I will not repeat, as the brothers do, what occurred, but you can read the rest of the chapter later on, and you will see uh, that account for them. Joseph's dream comes true. His brothers come bowing before him, do they not? One small prophecy and one seemingly insignificant act, confirming for Joseph that, that God is true. Twenty years later, they've not forgotten what they did to Joseph, we read. This reminds me of what 2 Corinthians says to us, these verses about repentance. It seems as if we are seeing these brothers on the road to repentance. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, wrote Paul to the Corinthians who needed to repent, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In this story, we are seeing some of these elements of godly grief beginning to take shape. And so, as we see this story of reconciliation, uh, the the brothers tell Jacob, their father, what has happened. That this man down in Egypt has spoken harshly to them. And that he's told them that if they would want more, they would have to bring 
their younger brother down. Obviously, this is not what Joseph, Jacob is going to let happen. He's not going to let that happen. The famine continues on, and we read in chapter 43, verse 1, the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother, Benjamin, with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with me. Israel... Interestingly, this name is used instead of Jacob. Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions, could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Judah, the one who in chapter 36 committed such unseemly acts. Judah, who in the intervening 20 or 30 years has had some sort of soul transformation. Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be pledged for his safety. From my hand you will require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Judah is reintroduced to us here. And Judah will figure prominently in next week's passage. And this is a changed man. Not indulging his passions, not skirting his responsibilities, but putting his own life on the line. Jacob relents. And as they go down, we read in verse 15, the men took this present, they took the original money, they took more money, they took gifts from the land, and they took double the money, and they took Benjamin. They rose and went down to Egypt, stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal. Make ready for the men or to dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sacks, our money in full weight. And so we have brought it again with us. What an honest act. We brought it again with us, verse 22, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. And we do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, the steward of Joseph replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. 
I received your money. You know, for years and years, God had been moving in the heart of Joseph. And it seems as though God has been moving in the heart of his brothers. Bringing them in their minds and in their hearts closer and closer to one another. And now they are in each other's very presence. Verse 30, 24 continues the story. When the man had brought the men into Joseph's house, given them water, they had washed their feet. When he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out. For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. We're still in the process of reconciliation here. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as many of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. We are left with a cliffhanger. But put yourself in the brother's shoes for just a moment, would you? These guys must think that Egypt has bugged their tents back in Canaan. And they've heard the conversations. And somehow they know the birth order. How in the world is this vice-regent of Egypt able to put them in perfect birth order? How does he give the youngest five times as much? Because God is moving hearts toward reconciliation. And so we should be pursuing reconciliation because God is pursuing reconciliation. God has always been pursuing reconciliation, hasn't He? Ever since Eden, when Adam and Eve first sinned, who goes to who? God goes looking for Adam and Eve speaks to them, curses their tempter, provides a sacrifice for them, covers their shame with new clothes. Ever since the tabernacle and the temple, God has been pursuing reconciliation. A place, a localized place for Him to dwell so the nations could come and at that place of sacrifice be reconciled and meet with the Creator of all the universe. And we're celebrating Christmas this month. 
God came to us because we could not go to Him. God pursues reconciliation with us. Of course, the shadow of the cross falls across that manger, reminding us that God will offer Himself as the sacrifice to reconcile us to Him. These wonderful words from 2 Corinthians 5 are part of the Christmas story. And this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Are you reconciled to God this morning? It's been mentioned in songs. It's been mentioned in prayer. We mention it again. We invite again. We implore Again, be reconciled to God. You and I are born as natural enemies, and He has come to make us His friends. By His death on the cross, He bridges the chasm between heaven and earth. And He calls you to be honest about your sin and ask for forgiveness, and you can be reconciled. God is pursuing reconciliation with us, but God is also pursuing reconciliation among us. God wants us to be reconciled with our fellow human beings. We are all created in the image of God. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. What's your reputation with unbelievers? Peacemaker? Pot stirrer? Blessed are the peacemakers. We are to make peace among humans because God pursues reconciliation, but we are to likewise we are likewise to pursue reconciliation among believers, among people reborn in Jesus' image. The Lord's Supper that we're going to observe in a little bit really is an expression of these reconciliations. Because we're reconciled to God, we can say that we believe Jesus died for us. We confess we are sinners. We take these elements not to be saved, but to declare we are trusting in Christ. But we also take these elements together in this room, signifying we are reconciled with each other. The letter to the Corinthians is a reminder of the, the danger of divisions and the necessity to come to the table united around Christ. We are to be pursuing reconciliation among one another, and there are two verses in the wonderful little book of Philippians that remind us it's needed within local churches just like ours. Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3 Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Someday in eternity, you and I will bump into Euodia and Syntyche. 
And we'll be reminded that they are two women in a church who were at hostility with each other, and the Holy Spirit decided to put their name in the Bible. I don't know if they recognized that when that letter got read. Could you imagine being in church one Sunday and the Apostle Paul tells you and another lady across the aisle to get along? That's got to make for just a... That Sunday was memorable, wasn't it? This This is how... Uh, how, how much God wants us to pursue reconciliation. He gives us this little glimpse into a little bit of church history where a couple ladies needed to get along. And the interesting thing is he makes it a group project. Can you go back to that slide, Tom? He makes it a group project. He, he says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. The funny thing is we don't know who that guy is. Or maybe it's a woman. It's a true companion. Yeah, the two of them are told to get along, but, but then there's a third party who's supposed to help, help pursue reconciliation with and for them too. I, obviously, the question for us at this point in time is, do we have relationships where God needs to move in our hearts to pursue reconciliation? Relationships with our parents. Relationships with our siblings. Relationships with our spouses. Relationships with classmates. Relationships with relatives. I love the fact that Rob this morning prayed for our fractured relationships because they need prayer. Prayer Prayer opens up God moving in our hearts and His purpose in moving in our hearts is to reconcile these fractured relationships that happen so easily, sometimes so unintentionally. And God wants us pursuing reconciliation. God moves heaven and earth. They respond instantly. God wants to move in hearts. And the speed with which God gets to move in hearts, inconceivably, is up to us. Will we let Him move in our hearts today? Let's bow for a moment and then Eric will play in preparation for the Lord's Supper.